0: Welcome to the Campus Christian Fellowship podcast for the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa. The question that popped in my head last night, which I don't know if I've ever asked myself before, nor do I think that anyone's asked me this before, but the question that popped in my head as I was reflecting on this chapter was How do I know that God is proud of me? It's not a question I've thought of before, as I said, nor one I've been asked. But I think it's one that struck me and wasn't something I could shake. And it kind of felt as if that's what this needs to be about tonight, is how, in which way I want to be able to help you guys understand. Is how using repentance how knowing that we are supposed to entrust God with the power in our lives how that is how God becomes proud of us not let not trying to take the reins of life by ourselves but by allowing God to control it but before we get into any more of that the first thing that we need to do is we need to listen to the Apostle Paul so in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians I think the best way to start is with verse 1 and it reads therefore since we have these promises dear friends let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God first of all there's a lot packed into this one verse so we're gonna take a good 5-10 minutes just unveiling what's going on here So we can really understand what Paul's talking about, what Paul means when he talks about repentance. So first of all, these promises, what is Paul talking about here? Understanding this verse is able to help us unpack everything else. So these promises that he doesn't name is an important part of this verse. So in order to understand what Paul means by these promises, we got to do some more reading which comes at the end of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, 14 through 18. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So tearing this apart in this section of the text, The Apostle Paul is talking about idols, but to a greater scale is talking about not being like the world. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. We don't want to be of the world. We want to be set apart from it, shining a light. What fellowship can the light have with the darkness? We are told to be different. And if we do be different, if we hold our end of the bargain, God as a promise for us. Chapter 7, verse 17 here. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Actually, 18 is what I'm talking about. and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We will be protected by the Lord Almighty himself. At the end of chapter 6 here, Paul is writing about the need to separate from Worldly influences so we can live with God moving forward to the next slide looking at this verse again we now know what God means what Paul means by these promises and that's important but second what is meant by purifying ourselves the process of purification necess- necessitates two actions first removal and second replacement what does need to be removed from us is everything that contaminates body and spirit. The Apostle Paul is instructing us to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. Temptations of the flesh, such as sexual temptations, get out of here. Greed, out of here. Anything that's separating us from God, out of here. We don't need that. We need to cleanse ourselves from that. So now what is contamination of the spirit? This is generally occurring where, where we are putting ourselves above God. Contamination of the body is something between us and God. But contamination of the spirit is putting ourselves above God. This is pride. This is the Pharisees believing that them fulfilling the law was more important than anything that God did for them. That somehow them fulfilling a set of rules is more important than their relationship with God. That's contamination of the spirit. So that is the removal step of purity. So what's the replacement step? That is, third, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. At this step, everything we have removed from our lives, we are now supposed to add, becoming whole with God. A state of continually doing good, becoming good. Cleansing ourselves from sin. Now, do you see an issue here with that? While we've been going through all that, you may be thinking, you know, Keegan, we've been spending a lot of time on this one verse. There are 16 verses in this chapter. Kind of need to get going if we're going to get everything in time here. We don't want to be here for three hours. But we haven't even talked about repentance yet here. Like I said earlier, this is important because it establishes an issue. If we want the promises that God makes for us, we need to purify ourselves, perfect ourselves. But we can't really do that on our own, can we? God tells us there's only one thing we need to do on this earth, and you get to be with me forever, and we can't do it, not alone anyways. We need a way to bridge the gap between us and purity. And that bridge is repentance. Uh, Before we read about repentance, we need just a little more context. Uh, This semester, John and Aaron, on numerous occasions, have brought forward the history between the Apostle Paul and the Church of Corinth. One of the things that they've talked about several times, specifically John more so than Aaron, has been the idea that Paul has sent more letters to the church of Corinth than just 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We have, uh, we have history of there being a severe letter where Paul is rebuking the church for straying away from what Paul has previously instructed them on doing. And in the next few verses, Paul refers to that severe letter here in the next body of text, So keeping that in mind, let's start reading again, starting at 2 Corinthians 7, 8. And here we'll be going to 12. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful, as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, You have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. So what's going on here? Paul states that originally he actually felt bad for sending that severe letter because it made the church of corinth hurt but now he's saying that he is happy that because in their hurt that being in that to to the point of where they felt sorrowful their sorrow led to repentance this is an incredibly interesting idea because paul is essentially drawing out the idea that pain occurs in our lives to draw us back to god the moments where we feel lost in life are intended to bring us back to God. How do you feel about that? This is somewhat along the lines of what Aaron was talking about last week, that bad things happen on earth because they occur apart from God. Ergo, we are always to be looking to God, hoping to put more of God on earth. You know, someone who who Cheyenne and I met in North Carolina last year, I think offers a great example of that. I was able to see work that myself and other people were doing really make a difference in other people's lives, but I got to see the way directly the different people reacted to their lives being turned upside down, that in moments where they felt helpless, it wasn't even something that they did, but their lives got turned upside down, house destroyed, pieces of memories lost even in those moments, they still seemed so full of joy. In those moments, the thing that struck me most is that they called us angels from Iowa, coming down from heaven, when we could be with our colleagues partying on some beach somewhere in Florida or in, you know, wherever else people go. We could be having a great time, but we decided to spend our week with them helping clean up and rebuild their house, putting their lives back together. And even in the midst of losing everything, to what some people would think of them losing everything, they never lost the ability to show God's love to others. And they never lost sight of what truly mattered. Not the things that happened to the physical body, but the ability to keep moving forward in the spiritual one. That struck me because I'm someone that I've always kind of been tied to the personal possessions that I can keep control of. But here it showed me that I can let go of all of that. That I can make mistakes. I don't want to make mistakes, but I can. God says you shouldn't. But that in those moments he's always right there ready to take us in again, even when our world is falling apart. Miss Annie and Miss Margaret from North Carolina were showing that even when the world was caving in on them they showed the strength that you can have by just staying there with God. I think they truly embody what it looks like to see tragedy happen and to be able to still see Jesus in the moment. Paul is also talking about godly sorrow here and Paul states that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, leaving no regret. You know, I want that kind of sorrow. Not earthly sorrow, which leads to death. But I think that here, regarding godly sorrow, I believe he's talking about the guilt we feel sometimes when we make a mistake and go, oops, I I should not have done that. I want to do something about that. I want the guilty feeling that when I make a mistake, I'm going to be at the point where I want to do good because of it, that it drives me to do good. That's the kind of sorrow that I want. Because let's read a little bit more here on verse 11 about what godly sorrow brings. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done? I want that. I want to be at the point where when I see something, I want to go help them. When I make a mistake, I want to run so far from that that I'm not going to do it again. But sometimes we do make those mistakes again, don't we? Paul is showing us that it's normal to feel guilty about our mistakes, our sin, but that that's how you differentiate godly sorrow from worldly sorrow. Further then than that, though, we need to be honest with ourselves and wonder what truly follows our mistakes. Is it a promise to change myself with putting, without putting any real effort to make change and then making all the same mistakes again? Or are we seeing earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness to see justice done? Depending on where you are with your walk with God, that can either be a striking challenge to the heart or still a challenge, but much more so acting as a confirmation that you're on the right path. I know that recently in my life, I know that, well, let me take a step back. If you're someone that's gotten to know me decently well over the course of the last two and a half years of me being on campus, then you know that I kind of have an issue with mental health. It's kind of something that keeps coming back up from time to time. It seems to be different issues from time to time. But it's still something where I don't feel the greatest about myself. And sometimes it's because of things that I do. And majority of the time, it's because of the mistakes that I make. And I think that I was reading this passage and planning on giving this sermon to you guys. For me personally, this came at at the right time when I know that I can do something about those mental struggles, if I can just stay with God, if making mistakes can turn me to the point of wanting to do better for God. Because a lot of times, at least when I make a mistake, I think, well, woe is me. You know, look at all the things that are going crappy in my life right now. But I think what I need to make sure to do And if this applies to you guys, too, if what we need to make sure to do is in those moments when we make mistakes, to be able to realize that God's standing right there for us, arms open, ready to bring us back in, no matter what we think of ourselves. And in a moment where across the university, across the landscape of people, they're still in their rather young days, that there are so many people, maybe even people in this room, that feel lost, that feel like there's no one there to pick them back up. Not only would I say to you that there are people in this room that want to pick you back up, but if you just open this, if you just open the Bible, you just read a little bit, that you'll be able to find someone that's willing to take you in, that's willing to help you, because God's grace is so good. But we still have a little bit more to read here. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But going back to Paul, repenting needs to be done, but ultimately requires works to follow our repentance. Faith without works is dead. And on the contrary, it's always important to note that we can't work our way into heaven but that we must humble ourselves, repent, and then follow up with our humility to make change in our lives. We must convict ourselves in knowing that our response to our mistakes are ones where we actually want to make change, not where we're comfortable making the same mistakes over and over again, telling ourselves that God will just forgive us anyways. But with that being said, we need to move on to the rest of 2 Corinthians 7, 13-16. Where I believe that the Apostle Paul is able to allow us to tie things up together quite nicely. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how hap- how happy Titus was. because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have embarrass- you've not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. And that's how Paul ends 2 Corinthians 7 or at least that's where our English interpretations of Paul's writing ends, 2 Corinthians 7. You see, I think there's a really stark similarity between us in the, the church of Corinth and Paul with God, respectively. We are the people who have gone astray, who have gone astray needing a severe letter. And Paul continues to reach out following up with the Church of Corinth to continue to stay on their case, rebuking them while they do wrong, but all the while encouraging them to do better and being ecstatic and filled with joy when they improve. So also does God strategically allow ourselves, allow obstacles onto our paths so that we learn, so that we turn back to him. In those moments when we turn back to him, we will be blessed. If we exist separate from the world, as God demands of us in chapter 6, he will hold up his end of the bargain. He will receive us. Because he's always ready to receive us. I remember when I was really young, and I was beginning to go through Heritage Christian School, a private school here in in the area that I went to, as well as Children's Church, I think the best way that they were able to ever communicate this idea to me that still sticks with me to this day is that in the very beginning of the Bible, that Adam and Eve and God were in the same place, the very same point. And as, over time, as they began to sin, That's essentially them trying to run away from wherever God is. So also in our lives, that whenever we sin, we think that our path is better than the one that God has intended for us. And we are running away from him. And in our minds, sometimes, when we realize that we're going away from where God is, we think that there's this giant gap from where God is to where we are. And we think that God couldn't love me. Look at all the mistakes I've made. Look at everything that's happened. There's no way that God could love someone like me. But the thing that's so amazing about God is that he forgives. Is that he wants us to repent always. And even as we run so far away from God to where we would think he would be all the way over there saying, Come on, you at least got to take a couple steps back to me. God's just right here. Because when we're running, God's following. He's constantly pursuing us. Wanting us to feel loved. So if you're feeling short on love, just turn around. Because God's waiting for you, arms open to embrace you, to welcome you back. If you're not in that position, where you feel like we feel like you aren't loved if you're not in that position there are others that do and if you're in the position to where you feel love it is our jobs to go out and to find others that don't because they're out there they're on our campus they could be in here So, I think just as Paul has confidence in the church of Corinth, a people who have royally messed up, turned on one another, done evil in the eyes of the Lord, so also does God have complete confidence in us that even though as we make mistakes, that he's saying, I'm right here, and I know you're going to turn around, so I'm ready for you. I actually want to go back to the very beginning about the question that I asked you. How do we know that God's proud of us? By attempting to purify ourselves, by putting God's way in front of our own, even while making, even while knowing that it isn't possible to stay wholly pure, repenting for every mistake that we make, always ready to see justice done all the same, we trust God above ourselves. Repenting for our mistakes and acting upon what we have learned to be right and wrong is how we know that God has full confidence in us. By relinquishing all control to God, there we can know that God is proud of us. And the way I know that is because always, without a doubt, God loves us. So if you are able to continue to that path to try to purify ourselves, even knowing that it's totally not possible, once again, by relinquishing that control to God, by pursuing an endless path, God's going to come alongside you and say, hey, I can take you there. It's not endless for me. Just reach out for that embrace. Because God's ready, arms wide open, to take you in. Hey, thanks for checking us out and spending some time with us this week. Quick reminder, if you're a student at Iowa State, University of Northern Iowa, or University of Iowa, we would love to connect you with a campus minister. So reach out to ccf.uiowa at gmail.com, and we will make sure we get you connected. Be sure to specify your school in an email. Additionally, if you have questions about anything you've heard today or anything that's on your mind, uh, we would love a chance to answer that here anonymously. So you can also just drop a line there again that is ccf.uiowa at gmail.com we hope you have a great week and please know that we are praying for you